All right. Um, are you ready? So on the screen, you will see the text that we have been exploring all month. It's a series called The Voice of Advent. We called it that because this text is essentially an announcement that was made uh, to the shepherds who were working out in the fields near Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. This is a messenger of God, and angels we call it, and uh, angelos, if you're into the Greek, and it just simply means the messenger of God. And so uh, this is the announcement that we've been looking at. And within these two verses, and we're going to read them together out loud, so you know, clear your voices, get ready for that. Uh, within these two verses, we've been looking at four smaller announcements that are within the larger announcement. Now, the larger announcement is just this whole thing that you may or may not be familiar with, and it happens uh, that we read this each and every Christmas season or something like it. And so we're going to read it together uh, right now. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Let's do this for the last time. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, up until today, the first three weeks of the series have been focused on just verse 10 of this announcement. As you can see on the screen, it's just the thing that you probably are familiar with if you've been with us the last three weeks, but the first thing the angel says to the shepherds is, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so for three weeks, we just kind of moved through this. And if you're new with us, here's a review slide of what we've learned. This is the the three announcements within that first verse that we learned about. One is there's nothing to what? Fear. We don't live our lives afraid of God, what God will do to us. But we live our lives in response to what God has done for us. Like, that's the thing that we led off with uh, in this series. And this, this thing that the angels say to the shepherds, do not be afraid, uh, is the most repeated command throughout all of the Bible. And it bears repeating that on the stage because it is the most repeated command in all of the Bible from cover to cover. This is the thing that keeps getting restated. Every time God shows up in some form, it's always preceded with, hey, don't freak out. Don't be afraid, because that's kind of what we do. Like, if God shows up, then I must be in trouble, right? And so, this is the thing that always precedes whatever it is that God wants to say or do in the life of a person. Like, don't be afraid. Do not fear, or fear not, maybe you've heard before. But we learned that that's not what God wants us to do. That the story of Jesus comes at us, not as a story that is something that we should be afraid of, but it's something that we should look forward to. And that the God who is behind the Jesus story, and for that case, all throughout the Jesus story, is not a God that we are to be afraid of. Now, the Bible does talk about fearing God, but that has more to do with obedience and trusting in His ways, like trusting His invitation to do the things that He calls us to do. But it has nothing to do with, I'm so scared of God that I'll do whatever He says. This is not the kind of fear that God wants from us. God loves us. And so whatever it is that he's calling us to do, there's nothing to be afraid of. And then in week two, we talked about the second part of this uh, announcement, and that is that what you are hearing is not bad news, it's not terrible news, it's what? It's good news. And without getting into all the Greek there, that's where we get the word gospel from. The word gospel simply means good news. We always think of gospel as something you do, but it's actually just something you listen to. It's news. The gospel is essentially news. And we hear it, and we come in this room every week, and we hear it again and again and again because it's good. And it reminds us that God 
loves us. The angel actually qualifies it saying it's good news of great joy, right? That it really is, it really is good. We talked about that. And then last week, we looked at this thing that I think we have to be reminded of week in and week out, day after day, is that God is for us, not against us. And this is what the angel means when he says that this good news of great joy is for all the people. Not a select few, but for everybody. And that God is for you, and for everyone, for that matter. He's not against you. So we've wrestled with those things and explored those three things for the last three weeks. Which brings us to today's verse. Just verse 11. The last part of the announcement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, not to make you mad, but this is actually the announcement. (laughs) Everything beforehand was just like a preface to the announcement. It was all just sort of the the housekeeping stuff before uh, the angel said anything. It was like, don't be afraid. It's good news. You You don't have to freak out. And it's for you. Like, that was all just preface. This is the actual announcement. That for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, a couple things about this verse that you may or may not already know. The city of David, just to help you, you know, bring you up to speed. The city of David is another phrase for the town of what? Bethlehem. Let's try that together. Ready? The town of? Bethlehem. Why is it called the city of David? Because David was from there. See, it's just that simple, right? Oh, that's, that's David's town. He's, he was born there. And uh, David was Israel's second king. They would say he was the greatest king. And he was from the town of Bethlehem. Now, this is important because all of the promises of the Messiah that we find in the Old Testament, you know, there's all these promises about him. One of them is that he will come from the line, the family line of David. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, particularly in Luke's version, a census was being taken, and everybody had to return to their hometown to register for the census. And so the, the earthly parents of Jesus were from... Bethlehem. And so they make their way to Bethlehem. And so the the child is born in the city of David, which if the shepherds are Jewish and if they know their scriptures, they're already sort of putting these together like this has something to do with the Messiah. The city of David, unto you a child is born this day in the city of David. The back half of the verse, Christ the Lord, Kyrios, Christos Kyrios, is an incredible messianic title. In fact, the words Savior and Christ and Lord in this order never appear together ever again in all of Scripture. It's it's held in its exclusivity with the angel's announcement that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Sotira, Christ the Lord. It's a unique title, and it's given to the shepherds uniquely. So this is the actual announcement. And the thing that I want us to hang out with today is this word, Savior. Say the word, Savior. It's kind of a word that you think about when you think of church. Like, okay, salvation. They want to save my soul. Like, they want, you know, they want, like, salvation to come. Right? Now, the thing about salvation is, it can be misunderstood in terms of what it is. When the early Christians, the first Christians, talked about salvation... They were referring to three things. One, they were referring to the forgiveness of sins. They were also referring to the closeness and the presence of God's Spirit in their lives and in the world. And thirdly, they were talking about eternal life. 
Now the thing about it was, when they were talking about the, the word salvation and those things associated with it, they were talking about it as if it was already happening. Salvation wasn't something that was going to happen. Salvation was unfolding in the midst of the world. Now the word uh, soteria, salvation, means what you see on the screen. It means to be rescued from some sort of dangerous situation. Or it means to be restored. Like there's a brokenness about something. And to save it means to restore it. To continue its use, right? But there's also this, uh, connected to that, there's this element of being renewed. Like there's a new kind of life that goes with it. Put all of that together. What salvation, this is a good definition, if you're just asking for one, which you're not, but I'm giving you one. A good definition for salvation is simply a return to wholeness. And when we talk about wholeness, we're talking about the wholeness that God has desired for His people, the whole world, from the beginning of time. But we broke that. We'll talk about that in a moment. We sort of put a fracture in that relationship. And the world ever since, as the New Testament writer Paul would say, has been groaning ever since. There's a brokenness about our world. And salvation is something that we all kind of want to see. If, 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 we're, if we're defining it in the way that you see on the screen, there's nothing about that is, that isn't attractive. There are things about our lives that we need to be rescued from. There are things about us that we need restoration you know, for. There are things about us that we would like to be new again. And all of that put together, all of us want to be whole. All of us want to be you know, completely what God wants us to be and who God wants us to be. And so this is what salvation means. But the question that comes up often, especially particularly when I'm talking to people who are outside of the Christian faith, is, okay, I get it, but sa- being saved from what? Are you with me on that? Maybe you've wrestled with this. Like, I get the whole God came to earth because He loves us, and He died on the cross because He loves us, but what am I being actually saved from? What is that? Well, again, when the first Christians talk about salvation, there's this issue of the forgiveness of sins, there's eternal life, and there's the closeness and intimacy of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in the world. All of these things come into play. But to make it very simple for you, although this sounds actually really complicated, but I got four more pages, so we're okay. Um, To being saved from what? Well, mostly from ourselves. Mostly from ourselves. When it comes to a friendship and a relationship with God, there, there are parts that we play in that relationship. Like, we do take steps towards God. Like, at will, we do things to deepen the relationship that we have with God. We all participate or can participate uh, in behaviors that strengthen our friendship with God. Things like prayer, things about meditating on His Word, things like community with others, serving, generosity, and the list goes on and on. There are all these things that we can actually do, like at will, like we choose to do these things, and it deepens our relationship with God. But even when all of those things are being done, and even if all of those things are like perfect, like in in other words, we're doing them, we're clicking through them, even if all of those behaviors are in the right place and are working right, they don't lead us to a perfected relationship with God. Because we still fail 
at times. Are you with me on that? We still, again, even in our best efforts to pray more, to read his Bible more, to uh, worship more, to give more, to serve more, just anything more, our best efforts to do all of those things, sometimes they fall short. And sometimes just because we're doing them, it doesn't mean it's changing us. Because we're still like on this side of eternity, we're still fractured people, we're still got a, we have a brokenness to us that it just makes it hard for us to live this perfected life with God. And he knows that. And one of the things that happens when we fail is that we lose intimacy with God. At least we think we do. Like we feel a distance between ourselves and God. And however, you know, you get to that place, we all have different responses for when that happens. And most of us try, you know, to make it right, to fix it, like to do things better or to do more, right? But there's this other side of us, and I think we can all understand this, is that we just, if we fail God in whatever way, we just kind of hope he doesn't notice. Are you with me on that? Let me show you what the Bible says in the very, very beginning. Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Because they're really smart. God's coming, let's hide. Right? From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So it is as funny as it sounds. They're hiding in the trees from God. It's God. Like, where are they? Like, you can't see. You know, because he's old, right? He can't see. Maybe they think that. He's old. He can't see us. Let's hide in these trees. Put the camo paint on your face. We're going to be good, right? Now, if you don't know the story, and I'm really going to paraphrase this, so please don't think that this is exactly what, what the Bible says. But when God created all things, there, and this is just in general, there are things that God said to the first humans, you can do this, but you can't do that. And what did the first humans do? They did the thing that God told them not to do. But it was a long sort of like, should we do it? Should we not do it? Should we do it? Should we not do it? This temptation kind of thing, right? And what the scriptures say that happens, what happened when they did the thing God told them not to do, it says that their eyes were opened, right? They had knowledge of good and evil. And really what that means among a lot of things, it means that they now understand what it feels like to disobey. So at whatever point this happens in history, humanity decides we're just going to do what we want to do, even though we know that we shouldn't do it this way. Even though it's fairly clear that we're not supposed to do this, we're going to do it anyway. And they do it, and their eyes are open, because they now know what it feels like and what it looks like to do something that God has told them not to do. And they feel tremendous guilt. There was a closeness that existed between humanity and God, and now humanity feels like there's a distance, and that God is ashamed or will be, as soon as he finds out, if he finds out. So they have this thing going in their head. Maybe he won't find out. Maybe we can hide. It's so brilliant, isn't it? We haven't really evolved, by the way, because we still do this. And so they hear, they hear God coming, and they hide. They throw themselves in the trees, hoping that he won't see. So a friend of mine named David, I worked with him for years and years and years and years. Um, 
we have a mutual friend named John. And John went to college with David, and David was telling me this story, because my wife and I had gone to New York, and John was a worship leader at a church that we visited. And I came back from New York, and I said, oh yeah, we were at so-and-so church, and John was leading worship. And he's like, John? And I won't tell you his last name. But he was like, really? He's got a job? And um, I said, he does. He did a really good job. And he said, man, the funniest story about John. I was like, okay. And he's like, John can never say no to anybody. Um, I don't know if you're like that. Anybody like that? We know who you are because you look so stressed, right? Uh, He's like, John can never say no to anybody because he doesn't want to hurt their feelings, right? And so his friend was getting married. That's why they were in college. John's friend was getting married and asked John to sing in his wedding. And John said yes, but he didn't really want to and he couldn't. Like he looked at the date, like, I really can't do that, but I'll say yes. And so he says yes, and like, it's a week before the wedding, and they're still in school. It's like a week before graduation, a week before the wedding. And John and David are in the cafeteria, student center or whatever, and in comes the guy that's getting married, and it hits John like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to sing this wedding, but I can't. And so instead of just getting up like a man and walking over to the guy and saying, hey, listen, uh, I know I told you I could sing in your wedding, but I can't. So it's okay if you're mad, but it's just I can't. John gets under the table (laughs) and hides you know, and David's eating, and David's like, what are you doing under the table? He's like, you know, I don't know his name. There's Bill. Well, yeah, but what are you doing under the table? He wants me to sing at his wedding, but I can't. So you're hiding? Like, what are you, for? You know? And so, do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's just this feeling that, like, okay, if I can just hide, then maybe it'll go away. If I can just not address it, if I can just let it go and just hide from it, it'll go away. And that's the picture of what it looks like to lose intimacy, not just with God, but with anybody, because that's what we do when relationships are fractured. Or more specifically, hiding from the other person because of something you've done. This is where you've got to listen here. If you hide from someone because of something you've done for them or done to them, then that's a sure sign that the relationship is fractured. It's the kind of separation and distance that we experience in our relationships today. The kind of thing that happens when intimacy is cut off because we're not fully committed or engaged or honest with the other person. And I think you know what that feels like. And aren't your relationships, like, don't you feel most intimate when there's nothing that you are hiding, right? Don't you feel most connected when everything is on the table? When there is no deception? Where there is no fear of being found out? When there are no mysteries between you and the people that you love? Like, don't you feel most intimate when that's the way it is? Like, there's just no secrets, about your flaws. There's no, there's no fear of like, she's going to find out or he's going to find out. Isn't intimacy much stronger when that's the case? And isn't it much weaker when that's not the case, when there's so much behind the curtain? And if we're hiding, like just I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm just going to avoid that, it's a form of salvation but it's salvation through escape. 
And again, I'll just say this without trying to be funny, but like, if we're we're trying to hide from God, it's really flawed. It's really flawed. Like, I'll just hide until everything is made right, or maybe he'll forget about it. And when we hide, part of the reason that we hide from God is that we're kind of uncertain that God can handle what we've become. We've talked about this already quite a bit this month. Or that He might be angry with us. And either way, hiding is a form, it's a very low form of self-salvation. Through self-imposed distance, we try to heal the situation. We just let it blow over. Which, you know, it never does. Now, here's the thing. I can work and you can work really, really hard at managing our flaws, managing our sin. But it doesn't last. Like you know as well as I know that we can all walk out of here today making promises to God that we'll never do this or be in that place or think those thoughts again, but our future holds failure for us. We all know that failure is in our future. And we all know that even in our best efforts, we're going to lose it again. We're all going to drift again. There might be a moment of perfection for us in this space or in some quiet moment. But in all our futures, there awaits more lying, more cheating, more hating, more judgment on others, more yelling at those we love, more distractions that keep us from our families, more moments where we lose our cool, more social situations where we feel better than others, more experiences where pride and lust and greed and anger and fear will get the best of us. No amount of promise to God takes those things out of our future. Perfection is not possible in this life. And if you think for a moment, oh, it is, then you're at that pride level, which sort of drops you at the bottom. You're a prideful person, thinking that you are perfect or that you can attain perfection. And so God is simply saying, both to the first humans who are hiding from Him, seriously, give that up. I can see you. Your camouflage is terrible, you're naked. That doesn't hide very well. I can see you. Failure will come again, and when it does, for us, it feels like there's a loss of intimacy. Because that's what sin does. It puts this distance between humanity and God. But listen closely right here. It puts distance between us and God. But not in the way that you may think. And this is the turn. You've got to go with me through this turn. It's not in the way that you think. The distance that we feel between us and God when there is failure in our lives is, isn't because of God's disappointment with us or that He's moved on or that He doesn't want to be seen hanging around us anymore. Because we're flawed people, because we sin, because we continue to make terrible decisions that hurt people and hurt ourselves, The distance that we feel between us and God in those moments is not because He has gone anywhere. It's because we kind of feel like we need to hide. We're the ones that feel like we have to get out of here. But we know from the life of Jesus 
the incarnation in general, that God came here, but we know from the life of Jesus, just from reading the stories, that his associations with certain kinds of people, as Luke would say, sinners and tax collectors and whatever, like, clearly Jesus is okay at hanging around with broken people. Like, it doesn't bother him. And John described the life of Jesus with a verse that we, many of us are familiar with, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he gave, that he came here, not because we're like ready to receive that, but because he just loves us and his world that much. So it's not as though God like is uncomfortable with our brokenness. So it's not that kind of separation or distance, although that's what we think. If I feel this distance between me and God, then obviously he has moved on, but that's not what the scriptures teach us. In fact, it's because of our brokenness that he comes near. Right? For God so loved the world that he came here. The incarnation of God, the incarnate person of Jesus, God incarnate in Jesus, is because we feel so distant from him. God is not playing chase with us like, come find me, come catch me, come reach out for me. He reached down to us. And so if our intimacy with God was dependent on our ability to remain clear of all future failures, then the whole relationship with God is unfair, it's unjust, and it's basically dysfunctional by design. Heavy stuff, hang with me. I'll say it again. If intimacy with God was dependent on our ability to no longer fail, then the whole relationship is unfair, it's unjust, and by design, dysfunctional. And you need to find a new God. But it turns out that that's all in our heads. And that salvation and the need for a Savior in Jesus is that God came to restore that intimacy with Him. And it's God's doing. And that we're only asked to trust that. Right? To ignore the feelings of distance and to trust that God is always near. In other words, salvation and restored intimacy with God is not something that we can do. And I think we all understand that. Because if God is perfect, and if perfection is out of the question for us, then the perfect God will have to make the first move. He'll have to make the big move. Because we're not going to be able to do that. And so, wherever it is that we are in our lives, whatever distance we may feel because of our sin because of our behaviors, because of who we become, if there's this great feeling of enormous distance between us and God and His mercy and love and grace and salvation, that's in our heads. That has nothing to do with reality. And whether or not we choose to trust that really doesn't matter to God. He's still offering us that saving relationship. Uh, Duke professor Stanley Hauerwas said it this way, God has refused our refusal to be his people. Let that sink in. It's heavy, heavy, heavy. God, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be your man. God says, I refuse that. I refuse that refusal. I refuse it. Yeah, but I, I'm, not, I'm not capable. I refuse that. 
He has refused our refusal to be his people. And so, before I get to this next thing, because I'm so excited about this next thing, um, because it's C.S. Lewis. And salvation, this saving relationship with God, this forgiveness of sins, this gift of eternal life, this promise of his presence and intimacy with him through his spirit, like all of that isn't anything that we can do. It's simply that we resign to the fact that it's what he does for us. We just, there's a resignation at the heart of salvation. Salvation isn't by escape, it's by giving up and giving in. It's like this, okay, I give up. And maybe I'm kicking and screaming, but I give up. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote about his conversion, which was a long road. And he said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. It's very scary, isn't it? He says in the Trinity term of 1929, I what? I gave in. That's salvation. Like, I don't take salvation, I give into it. And I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He would say in that same passage that he came to God like a prodigal, kicking and screaming, relenting. But salvation is nothing that we do. It's something we give up or give into. I was reading, you know, all month, this Advent season, I love the readings that come with the season. And one of the things that I try and do each month is read through the whole book of Psalms, all 150. And it's just called the daily office, it's the morning and evening prayers, it's all based on the Psalms, and you read four or five a day, and you get through it every month, and then it recycles. And on December 13th, this text was in the morning Psalm, and it was this, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Which is what Jesus said just before he died on the cross. It's a spooky thing to be reading during Christmas season. And yet, I was talking to a friend of mine, he's doing the same series we are, and I said, he said, what are you ending with? I said, Psalm 31.5. You know, he looked it up. He's like, why? How in the world are you going to get that around the Christmas tree? And I said, there's two truths, two things that are true. One, uh, there's a man named Jesus who died on a cross early in the first century at the hands of the Roman Empire. That, historians will say, is true. At this point, everyone is now in agreement that happened. Which means that, two, a man named Jesus sometime in the early of the first century was born. Okay, that's just logic. I'm just backing it up there. If he died, he must have been born. It's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, you hired a really intelligent pastor. <laughs> but the role of the, the seeker, and the searcher, and those of us who are on this journey to determine what God is up to and what he is doing in the world, the role is to determine why those two things happened. Why was he crucified? Why did he die? And also, 
is there a reason for his birth? Now, the season of Advent, it begins with anticipation, right? You're counting down. Preparation follows. You think about his coming. You think about the coming day, the 25th. And if you're into this tradition, you light the candles as a way of marking the time, week after week after week, right? And if you have kids, uh, you move those little things in the Advent calendar forward each day. And then another, and then another, and then another. And if you're in our household, you look for baby Jesus every day. Like, where's Jesus? Because one of our kids has stolen Jesus again, right? (laughs) And you do that every day until a rhythm emerges. One that at this point we're all fairly in sync with. But Advent soon becomes, if you follow the readings of the Psalms, and if you're following the text, you know, if you do this, uh, Advent soon becomes a season not of anticipation, but of resignation. If we follow the trail of the readings that are given to us, we eventually bump into the reason for His coming. And that is that the world needs salvation. That the world needs restoration. It needs renewal. Things need to be put back together. His coming is rooted in that mission. Right? There's a dark side to Christmas. And it's the need that we all have for salvation. And though we want that, I think we want that, we're not always ready for that. And the announcement to the shepherds came as a shock to them. Verse 9, before our passage even picks up, says that they were filled with fear, the presence of God. Because that's the theology that we carry around with us. Blame your church, blame your parents, or blame your anxious mind. That's the theology that we carry around. Like, we hope God is real. We definitely hope He loves us and He's gracious and merciful. But we kind of hope that He doesn't show up. At least not until we've told Him we're ready. At least not until we've gotten everything cleaned up in our lives. Like, we, that's the thing that is in our heads that keeps spinning around. Like, we tell ourselves that we've got to clean up first. This is the voice in our heads that tells us how unworthy we are because of this sin or that behavior or this relationship or that ongoing struggle. And then until we can get those things under control, that God moves on to more holy and better places. But the truth is, and this is what Advent teaches, the truth is, He comes anyway. He comes anyway. And at some point, And the journey, you just have to resign to that. Oh, he's coming. He's coming anyway. And truth be told, we're never really, really prepared for that. There's no amount of personal cleanup that any of us can do that would make his coming more smooth or timely. Paul said it this way in his letter to the Galatians in our New Testament. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, and watch these phrases, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This picture of like pressure underneath so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now when it says that in the fullness of time, when that had come, that's God's time, not our time. And those of us who struggle under the law, quote, we're never ready for His coming. 
There's always one more thing to work through, one more issue to work through, one more sin to conquer, one more behavior to fix. If we're living under the law, that's what it's like for us. There's always one more thing for us to fix. But He comes anyway. Whether we're ready for it or not, Christ meets us where we are, as we are. Worthiness has nothing to do with it because God's love isn't a response to our worth. Thank God. It's not a response to our worth. I mean, from His perspective, it is because we are worth that much. We may not feel that. That distance that we feel, that unworthiness that we feel, that's something in our heads. He doesn't feel that way about us. And so the writer of the psalm says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Resignation of God's, into God's greatness. Just resigning ourselves to that. Resignation to his coming is the best preparation that we can do. Resigning ourselves to His care, His forgiveness, and His grace and mercy. That's the pathway to being ready. Resignation. Salvation is about resignation, not escape. In other words, let God take all of that from us. And so this season. This feels like an Easter sermon, right? And it kind of is. Christmas is the beginning of that journey to Easter, where once again we'll circle around this same message that it's nothing that we can do, but it's something that God has done, and that forgiveness of sins and eternal life and intimacy with God, those are things that He gives us. Yeah, we take steps towards Him. We do things to increase our our depth in the friendship with God. But for, if we ever for a moment think that we can live without failure, there will be a distance between us and God. And so I just want to challenge you with one thing. If you have, and this is for two different people, one thing for two different it's very hard to do, by the way. If you have been a Christian for a long time and yet you feel as though there's great distance between you and God because of your failure. Today needs to mark the day that at least in your minds, you understand that that is only in your mind. That God is no further from you than half a second. I mean, He's right there. Intimacy, loss of intimacy, that's your problem. That's my problem. My parents have this thing hanging in our bathroom at the home I grew up in. And it says, if God doesn't feel close, which is a weird place to put this sign, by the way. It's very frightening. If God doesn't feel close, guess who moved? It's so cheesy, but it's so true. He hasn't gone anywhere. That's us. And so if you're a Christian and you're struggling with like this God feels distant, and it's because of your failures. You need to push that aside and at least theologically accept that's not true. That's what the enemy is telling you. God has moved on from you. That is untrue. And you need to look at that in the face of it and say, get away from me. And if this whole thing about trusting God with your salvation, with your soul, with your 
life here and now, like if that's been kind of a thing that you've been slow to do, and it has something to do with like, it's just not for me right now, you're never ready for that. He comes anyway. There's no amount of preparation to fall into the arms of grace. It's resignation. It's not escape. It's not I'll clean up first. It's just here I am, all of me, as I am. Because his love for you is not based on your worth or your mistakes or your perfection, but just on his love. And so my challenge is for you, maybe this season, before the the year turns, that you take that step and say, I'm going to trust God with everything. This Jesus story, I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to give myself to it and to him. And we want to hear that from you and talk to you and pray with you and celebrate with you. Let me close with this. Richard Rohr said, we are always the stable into which Christ is born anew. And all we can really do is keep our stable honest and humble and the Christ will surely be born. Simply meaning we just come to God as we are honest and humble. That's where salvation happens. Amen. Let me pray for you and then we will take communion together at one of the four tables. There's two in the front, two in the back. And uh, following that, we'll sing a song or two and then we'll be dismissed. But before you go, let me just say, as you take the bread and the juice, this ancient discipline that the church has done uh, since the Last Supper, It just reminds us of how much God loved us that he came here and he gave his life. The distance that we felt was met by his aggressiveness in coming here. So we celebrate that today through the communion. Let me pray. God, thank you for today and thank you for uh, the truth of your love for us. And God, we've sung about it today. We've sung that salvation is here. We've sung uh, that you love us greatly. We've sung that you're worthy. God, we've, we've explored your word today and wrestled with um, the truth that, we, that salvation is something that the world needs and it begins with us. And God, I pray for those who feel so far from you and maybe it's been that way for months or even years and it's all because of guilt or some sort of thing that's in their heads. I just pray that today is at least a first step to knowing that you are near always, that you're always near. God, as we take the bread and the juice, I mean, it's, <laughs> you're very close. And let us remember that as we eat and drink in these next few moments. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.